CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Himalaya. If you're a regular Think Like an Economist listener, you're probably the kind of person that considers it important to nourish your hungry mind. You're also probably the kind of person that likes audio learning. And if you listen to this show every week, you've probably also heard us talk about Himalaya, which is a new audio-first learning platform with over 150 courses on personal and professional development taught by instructors like author Malcolm Gladwell, divorce court judge Lynn Toller, mindfulness expert Sharon Salzberger, and many other thought leaders. What Himalaya is doing is different than a typical podcast. These are carefully curated audio courses rather than just more folks talking. Each Himalaya audio course is organized so that each lesson is a digestible 15-minute episode that focuses on the big ideas. Think of it as a pack of snack-sized lessons that'll nourish your brain. It's the best way for busy people like you and me to fit learning into our lives. And Himalaya's curated learning tracks make it easy to find courses you'll love on the topics you'll need to transform your life. I've really been enjoying Himalaya's course, Memory Booster. This is a really cool course that brings you insights from neuroscientists, psychologists, competitive memorizers, which apparently is a thing, and other memory experts so you can learn about how memory works in your brain and how to improve your own memory performance. Each short episode concludes with a memory task or party trick that you can work on, like how to work towards easily memorizing a whole deck of cards. For a limited time, Think Like an Economist listeners can go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. That's Himalaya.com. Enter the promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. Naz, it's time to start talking about models. Fashion models? No, macro models. (laughs) In a previous episode, we talked about business cycles and what data you should look at as you want to better understand where the economy is headed. But now it's time to learn how economists actually put all that data together to make their forecasts. We're going to build a model of the macro economy. We're going to look at the connection between the amount of output we produce and interest rates on this week's episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. We're here to teach you the super tools of economics so you can make the best decisions for your life, whether interest rates are high or low. Nestran Tavakoli Fire is with us. This week, we're going to bring together what we've been learning in these macro episodes, and we're going to see how the real interest rate shapes the economy. That's right. And along the way, we'll explore how financial markets affect the economy. Figuring all this stuff out is really important for understanding government policy and how government policymakers can guide the economy, because they can also tweak interest rates or financial conditions. And government spending and government taxes also can really impact business cycles. So if they get it right, they can light the sort of fire under an economy that'll cause it to rocket out of a recession. We need to separate this sort of short-run analysis from the long run. 
Remember we talked about all of this on an earlier episode about economic growth, that long-run analysis is all about the economy's potential to produce output, and that potential depends on the supply of labor and capital and human capital, plus the recipes or technologies we have for combining these inputs? This sort of long-run analysis really focuses on the economy's potential to supply output. And sometimes the economy fails to meet its long-run potential. Yeah, and these short-run disruptions... Those disruptions are the business cycle, and that's our big topic today. It's a big topic because business cycles have a big impact on people's lives. If people don't buy all the stuff that businesses are capable of producing, then executives of those companies decide that they're better off producing less than their potential. That means factories sitting idle, workers being unemployed, and those things cause real pain for families. Those executives figure there's no point making stuff you can't sell. As straightforward as that idea is, that was the launching point for what's sometimes called the Keynesian revolution in macroeconomics. Yeah, I remember studying this. John Maynard Keynes was the economist who pointed out that even if supply determines the economy's long-run potential, the short-run ups and downs of the economy likely reflect shifts in demand. His idea was that when the amount of stuff that people want to buy is less than the amount of output businesses produce, well, then businesses will cut back their production rather than continuing to stockpile more unsold inventories. And on the flip side, if people wanted to buy more than businesses were producing, those same executives will ramp up production rather than miss out on those extra sales. And so this implies that, at least in the short run, demand conditions determine output. So in this context, short run refers to the year-to-year ups and downs of the business cycle. Exactly. People get confused about this all the time because they take the relationships they learn between demand conditions and output and they apply it to the long run or when we're at potential. But it's important to realize that this is really about business cycles. So in this story, demand or the amount of stuff that people want to buy is a big deal. How do economists measure and think about this? The key idea is what economists call aggregate expenditure. This is essentially the total amount of stuff that people across the whole economy demand. Aggregate expenditure is the total of four factors, consumption, investment, government purchases, and net exports, which is exports minus imports. We economists love equations. So we say that aggregate expenditure equals C plus I plus G plus NX. So here, C is consumption, I stands for investment, G is government purchases, and NX is net exports. It's actually a lot simpler than that. Aggregate expenditure... It's really the sum of spending across the entire economy. So we want to think about what people, you know, like you and I buy NAS and other households buy. All that household spending is called consumption. We want to think about what businesses are going to spend. We usually call that investment. Then we can think about all the stuff government purchases, and we call that government purchases. And then, of course, there's net exports, which is the net addition to total spending by folks from abroad. Yeah, and we've been through each of these in our previous episodes. So the episode on consumption and savings, our episode on investment, and the one on international finance. We'll be looking at government spending in an upcoming episode. Today, we're going to look at how real interest rates affect aggregate expenditure and how this affects output. Let's start by quickly going through how the real interest rate affects each of the four components, which make up aggregate expenditure. First, we have consumption. The real interest rate is key to whether people consume, or in other words, spend, and this is related to the opportunity cost principle. 
If I don't spend this money now, I could put it in the bank and earn interest on it and spend this money plus the interest payment in the future instead. That's right. So if you think about that, if then the real interest rate falls, well, you're going to be getting less interest. And so that's going to make you less interested in putting money in the bank and more interested in actually spending the money today. So when the interest rate falls, we see people spend more. You can think about the real interest rate as being the cost of borrowing. So say you want to buy a big ticket item like a car, you probably have to borrow money for that. The lower the real interest rate is, the lower your repayments, so the cheaper it is to buy that car. All of this says the lower the real interest rate, the more likely you are to buy a car, the higher consumption will be. Next, we have investment. In our episode on investment, we saw that a lower real interest rate will boost investment as it's cheaper to borrow money to spend on capital goods like machinery. Yeah, this isn't that different to the choices that households are facing. The opportunity cost of using that money to invest is to put it in the bank instead and earn interest on it. This is a less enticing option if the interest rate is low. The lower the interest rate, the more likely it is that your next big project is profitable enough that you'd rather do that than put your money in the bank. The next factor is government purchases. A lower interest rate means it costs the government less money to repay its debts. That means there's more money left over to spend on other things like infrastructure projects, building roads or constructing schools and so on. But I want to point out that changes in the real interest rate don't necessarily affect government spending because the government could choose to just repay more of its debt instead. But I should say overall we tend to see that a fall in the real interest rate tends to lead to more spending by governments. And finally, we have net exports, which we looked at in the international finance episode. Net exports also go up when the real interest rate falls. But this one's a little tricky. So let's go through this one step by step to see why. So if the real interest rate falls in the US, it's going to be less attractive to keep your money in the US. So think about like fund managers, they're going to be looking for where they can get a higher return that's going to be countries with higher interest rates. So they're going to want to move U.S. dollars to countries with higher interest rates. Naz, what's that going to mean about the supply of dollars in currency markets? That means there will be more dollars being supplied. If there's an increase in the supply of dollars, the price of the U.S. dollar will fall. And that weaker dollar is good for exports. It's like everything that the U.S. produces just got cheaper for the rest of the world. So U.S. products will cost fewer euros, fewer yen. That's going to mean Europeans, Japanese might buy more American goods because they're now cheaper for them. A weaker dollar also means that foreign goods cost more dollars for Americans. And so Americans will buy fewer of these more expensive imports. More exports and fewer imports means a rise in net exports. Right. Through this long chain of reasoning, we figured out that a lower real interest rate will cause net exports to rise. We've been going through the four components of aggregate expenditure, or total spending in the economy, and in each case, a lower real interest rate leads to a rise in each type of spending. And when businesses ramp up production to meet this increased demand, this leads to greater output overall in the economy. Therefore, a lower real interest rate leads to more aggregate expenditure, and therefore to greater output. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We've just gone through how the real interest rate impacts aggregate expenditure and output. Now we need to see how the real interest rate is set. One part of this is easy. It's set by the central bank. So in the US, it's set by the Federal Reserve or in Europe by the European Central Bank. All of these central banks do the same thing. They set what we call the risk-free real interest rate because the interest rate they set is on a set of loans that involve very little risk of not being paid back. In the US, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, sets the federal funds rate, which is the rate on overnight loans between banks. These loans are almost certain to be repaid the next day. That's why we think of them as being pretty risk-free. You keep talking about the real interest rate, but do central banks set the real interest rate? I mean, what happens because of inflation? In fact, the Federal Reserve announces a nominal interest rate. Our actions, though, the way we respond to the interest rate that's set by the Fed is going to be based on real interest rates because it's the real interest rate that represents the opportunity cost of money. The Federal Reserve knows this, though, so they take inflation into account when they set the nominal interest rate. And they know that you just need to deduct inflation from the interest rate they announce in order to get the real interest rate. But in day-to-day life, when, for example, I go to a bank to leave my money in a savings account or if I want to take out a loan to buy a car, I don't get the interest rate set by the central bank. Yeah, Naz, you're right. I mean, the Federal Reserve is setting that rate that banks are lending to each other. It's not the interest rates you and I interact with. But the Fed shapes the price of borrowing and lending for the banks, and that's going to have a flow-through effect onto the rates that you and I pay for our sort of everyday borrowing and saving. Generally, when you lend money, there's some risk involved. Like, you might not get paid back. That's why lenders charge something we call a risk premium. You can think of this as the extra interest the lenders charge to account for the risk of lending out their money. So that means the interest rate I get when I go to the bank is the risk-free interest rate, which is set by the central bank, plus a risk premium. Yeah. So the interest rate you get when you take out a personal loan isn't going to be the same as the interest rate you'll pay if you borrow money to buy a car. Why? Because if you borrow money for a car and you miss some payments, the bank can at least repossess your car. Personal loans are riskier for lenders. So the interest rate on personal loans tends to be a bit higher. Yeah, because the bank can't repossess you if you miss some payments. This is also why payday lending shops charge really, really high interest rates, often in the double digits. You know, they're worried that they're just not going to get paid back. So they're going to charge these really high interest rates. And then only the people who are willing to pay such a high interest rate are usually people who are pretty desperate for the money. 
They often need it really urgently, which indicates they're in some sort of financial turmoil. Well, that also means that it is more likely that they can't pay their loan back. It all makes it super risky for the lender and hence that very high interest rate. Let me take a step back beyond the payday loans. All of this is playing out through financial markets. You know, those guys in suits buying and selling bonds. They matter because they're buying and selling loans, which determine the risk premium. And so all of this is a way of saying what happens in financial markets affects the interest rate you pay. And as we saw before, the interest rate you pay affects output. Let's put this all together. That means that when you take out a loan, the interest rate you're going to pay is going to be the risk-free rate plus the risk premium. But that risk premium is not just about your personal risk. It's also going to reflect what's going on in the economy and sentiments in financial markets. Hey, Naz, congratulations. You've now constructed your very first macroeconomic model. I've got to say that wasn't so bad. It's because a model is just a way of trying to keep track of what's happening to several different things at once. We economists often write down these models as equations, or we draw them as graphs, or we program them into a complicated computer model. But really, an economic model is just about seeing what happens when we account for several ideas at once. And that's what today's episode has been all about. Oh, I see. So our first big idea is that a lower real interest rate leads to more spending and more output. That's it. And if you want to get all fancy, you can even think about graphing that idea. You could plot the real interest rate against output, and you'd make sure that your curve shows that a lower real interest rate leads to higher output. In fact, economists call this the IS curve, which plots real interest rates against output. By the way, it's called the IS curve because it describes investment and spending decisions. Or because it describes what is, or IS, is going to happen. Uh, When I want to see how a different real interest rate will impact output, I look at the IS curve. And the second big idea is that we know something about where the interest rate comes from. Yeah, it reflects the combined influence of the central bank setting the risk-free rate and all those folks in suits in financial markets buying and selling bonds and the like, which determines the extra risk premium you'll have to pay. So we often summarize these actions in another curve that shows the prevailing interest rate. That curve's called the MP curve, which stands for monetary policy. So as monetary policy changes, the MP curve will move. And that's the beauty of a model. You can now trace through the impacts of all of these things. If the central bank lowers interest rates, then the MP curve shifts and the IS curve summarizes all the ways in which this is going to lead to more spending and more output. In this episode, we've looked at how the real interest rate impacts output, which is relatively straightforward. And this makes it a really helpful framework to start thinking about monetary policy It's also really helpful for thinking about fiscal policy, which is about government spending and tax policies. We've been focusing on monetary policy and setting interest rates, but the truth is there's only so much a central bank can do to fight recessions, particularly when interest rates are already low, like they have been in much of the world for the past few decades. The government can change its spending policies or its tax policies to really get things moving. It can put money in people's hands through direct payments or targeted payments or by cutting taxes. And government purchases like spending on roads or buildings or bridges or schools can really give the economy a kickstart. 
In March 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a huge $1.9 trillion economic relief package to help the U.S. economy recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. It included direct payments to people, targeted payments to households with children and the unemployed, and also includes spending on infrastructure. When the government spends more, then we have more output, both from the direct purchases government makes for things like infrastructure and as the government gives money to households who then go out and buy things. That's exactly right, Naz. So I'm one of those workers on one of those government infrastructure projects. I'm now employed. I have a $1,000 check. I can afford to go and buy fresh food for my family. So, Betsy, I'm going to walk into your store and I'm going to spend an extra $500 on food and other necessities for my family. Right. And then I'm going to take that $500 that you just paid me and I'm going to use $250 of that to go spend in your store, Naz. Okay, I'm starting to see how the money that the government pays to households moves through the economy. That's why we call it a multiplier effect, because what the government gives me, I then give somebody else. They go on to give somebody else. So realize how big of an effect it has really depends on people actually spending the money. Sometimes government spending is focused on purchases that government will make like infrastructure. But that's why you hear all these complaints about whether the government has enough shovel-ready projects. Because if they can't get the projects going very quickly, well, then the money doesn't get spent very quickly. Or maybe the government starts giving checks out to people who already have a lot of income. This isn't just about fairness. If you give money to people who have a lot of income, maybe they just end up saving that money instead of spending it. So it really matters what the government does with its spending in terms of what we call its multiplier effect on output. So it really means we want to focus our spending on stuff that's going to lead to even more spending so it can have a multiplied effect. All of this is related to the interdependence principle where one person's spending is another person's income. So a new road builder will spend money on lunch, which is income for people who run restaurants, and these restaurant owners will in turn buy things too, and so on and on it goes. The government's initial spending ripples through the economy And that's essentially the multiplier effect. We often have a number for the multiplier, which predicts just how much output will grow due to a change in government spending. It's not always going to be the same. In fact, a lot of what policy wonks do is try to figure out what that multiplier is going to be. But for example, if we thought the multiplier was two, what that would mean is that if the government spends $1, then that's going to result in $2 of spending in the economy. So an initial spend of $1 has a multiplied effect on total output. We've covered some pretty abstract concepts in this episode. Big picture, what are we talking about? Today, what we've been focusing on is the real interest rate and how that determines output. And this really comes down to realizing that the real interest rate represents the price of spending today versus spending in the future and how that price is going to shape what we produce today and what we buy today. Big picture, the real interest rate is one of the most important prices in the economy. And that's also a price that can be set by central banks. And what central banks are trying to do to manage the business cycles is they're trying to set that price in a way that either gets people to spend more today or less today, depending on the state of the economy. Let's put the pieces together. It's a model. We've seen the real interest rate affects how much people spend. We call that the IS curve. 
the central bank and financial markets affects that real interest rate. We call that the MP curve. We've got two ideas to keep it in our minds at the same time. We need an economic model. That's what we've done today. So, Nez, this is laying out the basics of trying to think through how we predict movements in the economy. But we've got some other steps that we want to take in order to really flush out how the macroeconomy works. The big issues here are my favorite monetary policy and Betsy's favorite. Wait a minute. Is my favorite fiscal policy or I know. is it monetary policy? You used to policy? work for the government, Betsy. I have to say, I, I think I'm a better monetary policy economist than you are, Justin. I'll tell President Obama you said that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com slash econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free. Himalaya.com slash econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time to think like an economist. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.